so we're slowly getting through Exodus here. I, I knew Exodus. I knew Genesis and Exodus would be very time consuming and I don't plan on spending this much time in Obadiah for for instance. Um but uh these two books are just so full and rich and I've seen I've seen more in them than I have in some other books and I figured we it takes more time with these books. And uh so I, what I want to start with is just reading like 13 verses or something like that from Exodus chapter 23 and then looking at looking at this and then maybe we kind of already talked about 20, chapter 24 we we talked about is we did kind of like a a sandwich thing we talked about 19 and 24 and then we got went back and talked about 20 through 23 and so after 23 if if we have time today we, we're going to start getting into the tabernacle which starts in 25 and I'm going to do my best to to share some things that I've seen about the tabernacle, which again we might get into that a little bit today. But um, every time I try to talk about the tabernacle, I just have this overwhelming feeling in my heart that I just have barely scratched the surface of a couple views out of hundreds. That uh, and I, I don't know. I just feel. Uh, Underqualified, but I'll, I'll share what I what I feel like the Lord has, has dealt with me about, and um, and the things that kind of come to my mind. And in the meantime, I'm going to be kind of trying to reread through all that again and see if the Lord can help me to see even more. Um, but let me just read Exodus 23, starting in 20 verse uh, 20 through 33, because there's just a few things in this little chunk here that I I. I think are really cool, and I'd like to I'd like to point out, especially the the latter part here. So, he says, uh, "Behold, I this is the Lord speaking. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Um, be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him." But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorite, the Hittite, the Parasite, the Canaanite, or Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. And you shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. And there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. And I will send my terror ahead of you, and throw into confusion all the people among you who come, uh, among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you, so that you will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate, and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness uh, to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. Um, they shall not live in your land. 
because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. All right. This is really, um, I guess the thing that strikes me here is God is beginning to talk to them about his, his purpose and he has he he's been dealing with them, and he he will continue to for quite some time about um, the relationship that he has established with them, what he's brought them out into, and yet his his heart his mind is always looking towards something, um, always with something in view, something that he wants to do, and and this is this is just one of those things that's become more real in my heart that. That God is so purpose driven. Um, he, he's he he has one purpose. He doesn't have a ton of different purposes. He has one purpose to glorify his son, or you could say himself, in a very specific land that he's chosen for the increase of himself, the increase of his kingdom, his government, his. His, his reign, and, and that's what he starts getting into here. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Just let me, before I forget to mention something, um, it, it, you'll notice here that he talks about his angel. And this is one of several places where you see, I'm, I, I probably did mention this before in this class, I'm sure I did at some point or another. Um, but just to mention this again, because if you're reading the New Testament, you, you come across these references from time to time. There's one in, there's several in, he, in the beginning of Hebrews. There's one in um, Galatians chapter 3. I'm trying to think where they all are. But they, that reference how God in the Old Covenant used the mediation of, of angels. And this is one of the places where you can just see that clearly. And, um, and I don't really feel like it's super... Uh, important to talk about that right now, except just to mention that the nature of the Old Covenant, the, the only reason that this has really uh, struck my heart in any way is just the difference between the Old Covenant and the New. And the fact that God kept himself separate. I mean, though he did a bunch of things that represented union with the people, like the tabernacle and the cloud and the whatever, in, in reality, he... He didn't actually join a people to himself until those people were put to death in the in the death of Christ and made alive by the life of Christ and were filled with Christ and clothed with Christ and then those people could enter into the Father. That's Christ had to prepare that place prepare that way, prepare the, the way for that relationship to be established. And, and before that, Christ said, no one has gone into heaven except the one who came out of heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven, which is such a, it was a mouthful of, that's John uh, chapter 3. But that's not how we usually think. We think, you know, everyone dies and goes to heaven and, you know, Moses did it and Samuel did it and David did it and, and whatever. And yet, there's these statements that, like Jesus, no one has ever been to heaven. And and I have to prepare this this way. I have to prepare, prepare this place. And, I, and I, I, I don't know exactly how to explain all that except just to say heaven isn't just the place that dead bodies go. Heaven is a, is a relationship of union with the living God into which the soul has to enter through a very specific door 
um, experiencing a very specific death and drinking in a very specific spirit and living by a very specific sun. You know, it's not, it's not just the place that souls go if they're good enough. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's defined that the substance of heaven is God himself. In some ways, I think it's more accurate to say, instead of saying God is in heaven, I think it's sometimes more accurate to say heaven is in God. Um, because I think they're both kind of true in a sense that, you know, when we, we speak of heaven, we think of something distinct from the earth. And you can say God is in heaven because it's, it's not, it's, it's a distinct life, realm, reality, relationship than, than anything that is physical, natural, tangible. But uh, in another sense, I think if you really start to, if you really want to define that, that, uh, reality of heaven, you can't look beyond Christ is the uh, the the actual Christ and his relationship to the soul his relationship to the father his nature his life his light his he is the he's the substance of all of it and um and, and it, it's 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 not just the place where you're going to see him oh it is the him into which you are planted and it's his eyes that are opening in your heart to see what he has always seen the glory that he had before with the, with the father before the creation of the world you see heaven is something that i think the natural mind has uh carnalized naturalized humanized in 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 ways that are almost unspeakable the the the, the average funeral i think uh does an amazing job of of completely factoring Jesus out of heaven except as a potential visitor to your mansion you know and uh to your golden mansion where everything is just as good if even if Jesus doesn't come over because heck I mean you've got a golden goose and a and and a you know uh whatever you know you can fly and pass through walls and all that stuff that's total nonsense. Jesus is the actual, he is the material, the, he's the actual fabric of heaven. Everything that you'll experience of heaven is something of Christ. And there's nothing to heaven outside of the boundaries of Christ. There's nothing that you'll ever want to have in heaven, in a heavenly reality and relationship. Why am I talking about this again? Oh, because none of this was, I don't think any of this was possible until, uh, until under the old covenant where there was this, God was keeping himself at a distance. And, and sometimes he just kind of comes out and says it. I'm not really going to go with you, Moses. I'll send my angel instead. I'll kind of go with you, you know, but if I really dwelled in your camp, you'd all die. You know, if I really put my dwelling place among men, you couldn't stand before me, you know. And so he does it. He does dwell with them, but he does it in kind of a figurative, uh, uh, pictorial uh, sense using angels. So angels come and they they speak to uh, everyone. You know, everyone that spoke with God, um, Moses, the burning bush. It was an angel, but it was the Lord. It was the Lord speaking through an angel. You know, uh, the, the three angels that visited Abraham, the two that went to visit Lot. They were the angels of the Lord. They were the Lord, but in the in a mediation through a mediation. Of angels, and and here we see that again. And I just, I just point that out, just because I want to always kind of uh, stress the incredible nature, the fact that's what Paul says in 
in in Galatians chapter 3 is that we don't even have a mediator anymore except for the one who is God. We are actually in him. And that's what uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is trying to stress too, is that this Christ who has taken us to God is much greater than than the angels, far greater than what was available under the Old Covenant. And um, so, I just wanted to mention that. But um, getting back to the purpose thing. Here we have God's uh, God's God's view, uh, His eternal purpose coming out again. It, it comes out all it comes out all the time in these little statements here and there. And, and if you, if it begins to be real in your heart, then then those statements start to stand out in Scripture. But um, it, it's in His heart to to create something that actually becomes the living container, the living vessel, the living kingdom, bride, uh, land, harvest, whatever representations you want to look at it, uh, used to look at it, it's in God's heart uh, to that that His Son will have an increase according to His to his kind. At one point, um, I'm speaking figuratively, but at one point before the creation of the world, the father looked at his son and, it sa- and, and it said to him, it is not good for you to remain alone. I will make you a place where you can actually have an increase. I will make you, a, I will give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you an inheritance and and, so, and and you know maybe some angel standing there listening said I'm, I'm totally making this up okay so don't take me too seriously but I, I think the general sense of it is true so so an angel standing there says what could you possibly give him that he isn't already that he doesn't already have and the father says here's what I can give him I can give him I can give him an environment in which his perfection is magnified. That's what I can give him. I can give him, I can give him a bride that is both the recipient of all that he is and a showcase for its increase. I can give him a land that actually takes his seed and is filled up with the increase of it, not able to produce anything of itself, but able to bear in itself. A, a harvest, a reproduction, a multiplication, not a bunch of Jesuses, but a bunch of land in which the one Jesus has a harvest, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, I, I picture again the, the angel saying, what, what in the world, what, what kind of thing could you actually, what, what kind of land or what kind of vessel, what kind of container, what kind of bride, could actually function in that capacity, and, and God says, "Well, I'm going to make these 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 humans." And the angel says, "That won't work because that won't work because they will never be able to know that purpose and walk in that purpose." And then the Holy Spirit jumps in and says, "That's." Where I'm going to come in, I'm going to reveal it in them. I'm going to show it to them. I'm going to be the light. I'm not only going to the God's the Father is not only going to give them the seed of the Son. He's going to give the Spirit to reveal that seed and cause the increase. And anyway, that that's what that's what I I mean. I don't I don't always think in those corny you know heavenly conversations, but but I but but I see that purpose just splattered all over 
and and woven in and peppered all throughout to the, the the whole Old Testament. It's in all it's in every story, and it's this it's this desire of God to uh, it's this it's this incredible desire of God. In the same way he looked at Adam and said, it is not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make a way for you to increase and fill this whole land. That's his desire with his only son. There is none like you in kind, in nature. There's no suitable partner for you, Jesus. And yet I'm going to create one. And the only thing that's going to make it suitable is that it's created to bear your increase. That's what makes it suitable. It's created. It's a womb that is created for your seed and for your glorification. And so um, <clears throat> that's what he's talking. When, and, and, and someone might say, if they're not familiar with this scripture, what in the world does Exodus 23 have to do with that? And I understand that question, but that's exactly what the land is. It, he brings them out, De- Deuteronomy 6, 16 maybe, I think. He brought them out to bring them in and give them this land to fill, n- Numbers 14, uh, 21-ish, um, as as surely as I live, says the Lord, I will fill that land with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's my, it's the only reason I purchased that land, and and uh, and so that's what's going on here. You, you know, I'm going to send my hornet or my my angel before you like a hornet. And it's gonna, and it's gonna go before you so that the seed of Israel, the seed of Abraham, the seed which is Christ, the seed to whom all the promises were made, the seed that I was thinking above, about before I even made Abraham, the picture, or Isaac, the picture of the seed. The, 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 the one thing that I've had in mind before any of you people existed, as surely as I live, says the Lord, I have one purpose, one desire, and it's, it's, it's to take this land, and I'm not talking about the physical place in the Middle East. I'm talking about the thing that that physical place represented, which is the corporate spirit-born souls of 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 uh, the church. And I'm going to I'm going to fill it with my glory, or fill it with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. One of the prophets says, "Fill it with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters covered the sea." And so he begins to speak about uh, driving the things out that were already. Here's the problem: the womb is already full. <laughs> there's an there's an Ishmael living in it already, you know, or the land is already full of Canaanites and Jebusites and Hivites and and Perizzites, uh, and parasites, probably from his point of view, and 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 the the whole thing. Is 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 purchased for his glory, and yet there's something else living in it, reigning in it, worshiping in it. To, I mean, not just living there in the uncircumcision of their flesh, not just sacrificing their children to Moloch, you know, through the fire, and not just doing all these abominations that he lists in Deuteronomy chapter, or in the whole book of Deuteronomy, really. But but not only that, they're giving off a fragrance to their own imaginary gods, and and. And the, the thing that he is so strict about in the types and shadows and in your own heart, the thing that he cannot say enough times throughout the Old Testament, all throughout, is my seed will not mix with that seed. You, It will destroy. It will kill everything that breathes. It will smash down their 
pillars. It will tear down their high places. Don't you dare make a covenant with them or with their gods. Don't you dare intermarry with that seed. Don't you dare let them live in your land because they will make you sin against me. You will serve their gods. Don't you dare let your heart go outside the boundaries of that of of, of the increase of Israel on that land like Solomon's heart ended up doing. You know, I'm going to send this hornet in front of you, and he's going to drive them out. They can't. You're going to either kick them out or kill them. I mean, that's what that's what ends up happening. And the whole reason is that uh, that that he could accomplish first in shadow, then in substance. First is the natural, then is the spiritual. First, there's a spiritual order. There's an order to all of this. It's the order of 1 Corinthians 15. First is the natural, then is the spiritual. First is the the first man, the first creation, the first covenant, then is the second man, the the new creation, the new covenant. And and so here he is. Here he is talking about it in shadow, shadow language. And, uh, and 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 where is he doing it? Where is he seeking to accomplish it in spirit and truth, except for in you? So, um, let's see here. Kind of just shooting from the hip here, but um, so the emphasis here is what I wrote down here is that the emphasis is always on. Um, uh, the increase of of Israel, the increase of the of the of the seed of Abraham, the seed of faith, the seed of promise, the seed of the Spirit, all those different things that he was so careful to um, to demonstrate in the story of Abraham and Isaac and and Ishmael and and Sarah and Jacob, all those things we spend a lot of time looking at. You know, it wasn't just any old seed that God made. It was the seed that they had to wait for, the seed that came out of a dead womb, the seed that came out of an old man who was as good as dead, as it says in Hebrews, the seed that was put to death uh, figuratively on an altar and then given back as a type of resurrection. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of the sacrifice of Isaac. It wasn't just any seed. It was the seed. It was the second. It wasn't Ishmael. It was Isaac. It was the seed that was circumcised. It, I mean, all these pictures. It was Christ. It was Christ, and 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 God's desire is the increase of Christ's government in the soul. He doesn't want you to be a Christ. For Pete's sake, he wants to fill you with the only Christ, and in you to have victory over his enemies, and uh, and his enemies are in you. Where are the enemies of God? They're in you. They're in the land. Where are the idols that God's trying to cast down? They're in the land. They're in you. Where, where is the uncircumcised flesh that He's going through the land killing? It's the it's He's never going. He's never concerned with anything outside of the land that He's purchased for His own glory. And He gives you the boundaries of it. It has very specific boundaries because it represents a very specific possession. It is God's inheritance in the saints. Ephesians chapter one. He He wants us. You know. Oh, how does He say it? Um, Ephesians 1, that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him and the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the expectation of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in a very specific place, in the saints, in the saints. So, okay, Um, so... The the 
right now we're still kind of, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking ahead here because, because God was kind of, I think, always looking ahead and he gives us a little picture of it right here. And, and, and yet we're still in the, the, the time where God is dealing with them about the relationship. He's trying to teach them the relationship because it's that very particular specific relationship that's going to go into the land and fill it up. But first he has to define the relationship. First he has to show them what it means for them to be in Christ and then the Christ that is in them will fill up that land. And so, and he's always trying to wean the people. He's always trying to wean hearts off of their own man-centered purposes for having a God unto his eternal purpose for having a people. And that, I think that's a, a pretty decent way to describe what God's doing in, in Christians. They, they're born again. They come to know that God is real and immediately they're filled with a bunch of man-centered purposes for finally, you know, having a God or knowing a God or, and God, and God understands that when a baby is born, they understand nothing, but his, his desire is to wean them off of that and show them the eternal purpose that he has had forever for, for, and he, the reason for which he has desired to have a people. All right, th- this part here in verse 29 uh, caught my attention a few years ago, and uh, I really liked it. I really liked what I, when I was seeing in this in these verses. It says, I will not drive them all out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate, and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little, until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. Um you can see here the reality of the prog- there's a progressive work and um and I think you can also see kind of something of the order of the progression too that it is it's kind of like the order that John the Baptist uh, mentioned he must increase and I must decrease he didn't say he must I must decrease and there and then he'll he'll increase I feel like the 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 order is important in various places. You can see this order that, it, it, you know, it's your increase that brings the decrease of the other, and and that's um, see. I, I have I sometimes have a hard time putting this in words. The, there are indeed enemies in the land, seeds of the enemy. You know, seeds of the devil, seeds of a contrary nature, and and the the purpose involves destroying them, destroying those enemies. But God, um, God's desire is not ju- in your heart or in you know in, in the types and shadows and in and in, and in the fulfillment. God's desire is not just to get rid of the bad, the evil. He doesn't just want the decrease of the enemies. If that's what he wanted, he could have just called down fire. He, he could have just, you know, zapped them all in, in the types and shadows. And, and he could have just zapped them all in you, too. He doesn't want just the decrease of the bad. He wants the increase of Christ to become the decrease of the enemies. Do you see the difference um, th- there are there are enemies filling up his land, but the Lord the Lord isn't. I mean, let me say it this way: 
The absence of Adam isn't the same thing as the presence of Christ. Okay, or a land emptied of enemies isn't the same thing as a land filled up with the seed of Israel. Or you could say this way, an Adamic man with all of his demons cast out isn't the same thing as a soul that's filled up with Christ. Or in the parable of Jesus, a strong man that's kicked out of a house, if the house remains empty, unless a stronger man comes in and lives in that house and fills up that house, then then there's really nothing that's been accomplished. So what I what what really struck me one time when I was uh, when I was reading this scripture is that the eternal purpose of God isn't ju- it involves victory over enemies, possessing the gates of the enemies, and all those different ways that He speaks about it in the Old Covenant. But it's not just it's not just the elimination of the enemies that's his goal. It's the increase of Christ that's his goal unto the elimination of enemies. And part of the reason is is that he there's something he wants to save. There there's something that he's the 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 increase of the seed is both is the salvation of the land and the removal of the enemies. If you can follow what I'm saying. There's there's a soul he wants to save by filling it with Christ and destroying the enemies in it. He doesn't just want to destroy the soul. Now, to the soul that only has known those enemies, it feels like death. It comes to you as death. It comes to you as I have been crucified with Christ. You know, I've been baptized into the death of Christ. But there's actually this there's something that God is saving by filling it with his own seed while he is putting away the, the the thing that formerly filled it, polluted it, and made it an abomination. And I see the same thing in the story of David. David never wanted to... David Saul treated David like an enemy. But David never saw Saul that way. David fought the battles of the Lord. David didn't fight his own battles. In, in fact, I like that story where um, Abigail saves David for fight, from fight, fighting his own battle one day. And that's what, that's what she... Remember that, that, that the wife of Nabal or Nabal or Nabal? I don't know how you pronounce it. Comes running up to David. You know, Nabal just, just really ticked him off because he wouldn't give him any food after he'd washed his sheep. And, um, and, and, and David says every man's put their sword on their thigh you know and, and we're going to go kill this whole house and Abigail comes out and says no 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 don't don't strike these men in your own will don't fight your own battles you're the you're the one whom God has established as king over all Israel everyone knows it and you fight the battles of the Lord far be it from you to shed blood by your own hands you know and 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 David says you're right and then he marries her <laughs> but uh i mean after God strikes down Nabal but um, or Nabal, and my my point is, I have a point. My point is that that David there, there's there's two 
there's two really big pictures going on in this increase of David. There's the fact that he's trying to save Israel. He's trying to save the house of Saul. He doesn't want to kill it. He never lets anyone touch it. Even though the house of Saul is so confused and demon-possessed and filled with the enemy that, that he doesn't even know what's good for him. And he ends up trying to fight against David along with the Philistines. David understands who the enemy is, who needs to be killed, and who needs to be saved. And he's all, his entire life he's trying to show kindness to the house of uh, Saul, the, the house of Saul and the sons of David and Mephibosheth and the whole thing. Who exists of the sons of Saul that I may show kindness to them for the sake of my uh, covenant with Jonathan? Remember that? And and then they bring Mephibosheth in there and uh, and let him eat at the, eat, he eats at the king's table for the rest of his life. I hope I'm not sounding too, I'm using the language of these stories to try to describe something, and I hope it's not sounding too convoluted. What I'm trying to describe is that God doesn't want to, if he just wanted to get all of his enemies out of his sight, he could kill your soul together with the seed of Satan that fills it and throw the whole thing into the pit. But what he wants to do, if you'll let him, is do this incredible work whereby... The soul is saved by being baptized into the death of Christ. And the Philistines are killed. The seed of the enemy is killed. The uncircumcised flesh is killed. The idols and abominations that filled up the soul, that filled up the land, is is destroyed. And yet there is something saved and brought into the house of David. The, 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 um, the, the, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the way it says it when Mephibosheth, thought, Mephibosheth shall always dine at the king's table. He who have prepared a table for me. You know, he, he brings your soul into the good of all that Christ is, and yet he kills in your soul everything that isn't of his own kingdom and seed. And, and, and all of that to say that that's just what I, I, I probably didn't describe it very well, but that's what I see in this scripture here. I will not, I will not drive them all out before you in a single year, that the land may become desolate. I'm not interested in just emptying the land of all of its bad things, because then you know, uh, an Adam without demons is still the wrong seed. A, a land without Philistines still has a bunch of beasts in it, and 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 they're too numerous for you. You know, that the purpose isn't that bad things are driven away it's that the good the only one thing good christ i will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and possess the land that's that's it do you see what he's saying there in verse 30 that you become fruitful and you possess the land that's what he wants to see to do in you and of course that will be in you the removal of every every contrary seed and every every uncircumcised thing and yet there is something that's saved the soul is saved and filled with um, filled with the, the, the government of the king the sword of David so again let me just say these three little things I wrote down again the absence of Adam isn't the same thing as the presence of Christ. The, a land emptied of enemies isn't the same thing as a land filled with the seed of Israel. An Adamic man without demons is not the same thing as a soul filled with Christ. 
and and that's what I really see in these these scriptures. And maybe maybe that doesn't mean a whole lot to you right now. Maybe someday it'll come around to you, and, and it'll just really strike you as beautiful and important. But um, all right, let's. I, I just have a little time left here. Maybe just introduce a couple things about the tabernacle, and we'll get into that more next time. Exodus twenty-five. I'm going to read the first uh, eight or nine verses here. Um, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel." that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And verse 8 is just paramount. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So, uh, let me read one more verse. According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So, what is the tabernacle? I think verse 8 tells you exactly what it is. In just a few words, but at least gets you turned in the right direction. What is this what is the tabernacle? It's something it it is a place. It is a way for God to dwell in the midst of his people. Whatever is going on in the tabernacle, because I say this because I've read a bunch of books on the tabernacle over the years, and they all just seem to be about a bunch of random things. It's like whatever theology was most interesting to the guy that wrote the book, you know, that's what all the little gizmos and the furniture and the gold, that's what it all represents, you know. And, you know, and, and that's, and none of it really has to do with this, this, this incredibly essential reality of God living in the midst of his people, God living Christ in you. And yet he says right here that the purpose of the sanctuary is that I may dwell among them, that I may dwell. And, and, and of course, we know from the, from the New Covenant and from the New Testament that, that um, the, the fulfillment of this is a literal union of the Spirit of God, the life of God and the soul of man. So that's, what, that's what's going on here. Make me a tabernacle or make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now I think you could say we're we're going to look at the furniture and we're going to look at the different, you know, um uh compartments or whatever and 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 the different things that are offered up and and how I how I how I at least the the small amount of light that I have with regard to these things in the in the coming weeks but I think that just to paint with real broad strokes tonight, I think you can see in this tabernacle a the reality that God has desired to dwell in a people, and b you can see that which God is is doing. What God desires to do and to be in the midst of the people. There's so many Christians that talk about the fact that Christ is in them. 
but what in the world is he doing in them? What is happening? What does he desire to, them to to know of him and experience of him? What what's going on? What should be going on in that place where man and God have come together as one? That's I think that's kind of what we're going to see in this tabernacle. And and you can say, I think it's true to say that, that Christ is the tabernacle in whom we dwell, and you could say that we are the tabernacle in whom Christ uh, dwells. I, I think both of those are true, both of those are biblical, and, and they're not two separate things. I think the, the reality of it is that the tabernacle isn't one or the other. It's actually the coming together. It's the union, it's the coming together, it's the relationship where God and uh, and the souls filled with his life live as one. And then there's the operation of both of God, what God is made unto those souls and what those souls uh, function or, or what what those souls are purposed for unto God. All of that's right there in the tabernacle. It's like, but, but the, but the tabernacle, you know, Jesus says, you think about it, you know, well, Paul says, you know, you're the temple of the living God. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. You, you can see both of those are called the temple, but in reality, it's not two separate things. It's just, it's the one, it's a new, it's, it's a new heavens and it's a new relationship between heaven and earth. Is, is what it is in one. It's heaven and earth coming together in one dwelling place. It's the souls of the redeemed and the eternal, untouchable, unapproachable God coming together in one mountain. It's it's Exodus fifteen seventeen. I I will bring them and I will plant them in the mountain of my inheritance. So I'm bringing them in and planting them there, which is also the place where I have chosen for myself to dwell and reign forever, says the Lord, Exodus fifteen seventeen. Or you see that mountain later in Exodus nineteen and twenty four that we talked about already. No one can go near the mountain because it's holy, it's sacred, and yet God opens up a way and he himself comes down onto the mountain, shakes the whole thing and burns it, and the people go up the mountain and they both dwell there together. They eat and drink with God and they see God and they're not consumed. It's it's this relationship. It's not a it's not one or the other it's the two it's it's a it's a again it's a new relationship between heaven and earth it's a new heavens and a new earth in Christ Christ being the very fabric of the tabernacle Christ being the very fabric and the and the material and the substance of all of these things that the children of Israel are offering up to God for his own dwelling place he is the gold silver and bronze he's the blue purple and scarlet he's the fine linen the goat's hair the ram skins the badger skins the acacia wood he's all that and one view or another and 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 we're joined to him in that and so he is he's the light and yet we're the candlesticks that are are allowing that light to have um expression and and brightness uh you see that too in in john chapter or john revelation chapter one you know the candlesticks are the seven churches and yet you look and who's in the midst of them but the one who defines them the one that gives them substance you know he's the bread he's the substance of the bread and yet and yet he says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And he's the, he's the source. He's the one blessing it and breaking it. And they're the one passing it out. We, Peter, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. You know, uh, 
so so he's the reality of it and 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 yet we're the partaker we're the eaters of it and the sharers of it we're first corinthians chapter 10 you know the the community the the actual union the 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 thing that we share is the one loaf of christ and you know we could go on to all the different things you know the the incense he is the glory he's christ in you the, the 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 fragrance he's that special incense that you cannot put on flesh and yet that incense is is rising up to god through a people out of a tent out of a tabernacle out of a place that he has chosen to dwell in and so the tabernacle and i'm going to wrap up here but the tabernacle shows us the the what of the relationship of union the how, the, the what it is and what it's doing. The how God can actually dwell amongst you and how God can make you into the actual place for his own holiness to dwell and make itself manifest. Um, so, again, that verse, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Uh, and and always according to the model, because the model is Christ. Do it all accor- exactly. There's no room for human ideas or human interpretation or human imagination. Don't hire an interior decorator to come into the tabernacle and arrange it the way you think it looks pretty because it represents something spiritual and eternal that does not budge. It ha- you have to make it according to the spiritual, make the natural pattern according to the spiritual reality, and God's very, very specific about that. All right, I'll I'll stop the recording there and we'll see.